Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, a few notes for you this week. We'll go ahead and lead off with mention of EuroClosure, which is our conference that uh, we put on about closure in Europe. This year it's in Barcelona, Spain. Um, you should go and check out euroclosure.org. Um, we are still open for sponsors. Additional sponsors should be welcome, and you can get your tickets there too. Looks like it's going to be a good conference. I would definitely encourage you to visit the website and uh, check it out and pick up tickets. Closure conferences are always a ton of fun. Really nothing like getting together with just some of the nicest people who are also interested in, in the cool technology that you presumably are. So check that out. I uh, also want to mention again, Ambrose Bonaire Sargent, former guest on the Cognicast, has a uh, crowdfunding campaign going for type closure, kind of to take it to the next step. Um, you can find him on Indiegogo. Um, if you just search for Ambrose Bonaire Sargent or type closure, I'm sure you'll find it. There's a URL, but it's fairly long, so I'm not going to bother to read it out. Finally, I want to mention a closure meetup. There is a uh, closure coding dojo happening in Vienna, Austria, Wednesday, June 17th, 2015 at 7 p.m. Um, you can find that by looking for Closure Vienna, Closure Coding Dojo, or looking on meetup.com for that. Uh, no experience necessary. Those uh, That's a meetup where if you have never done Closure at all, you can show up and there will be plenty of knowledgeable, helpful, friendly people there to work with you. So uh, go check it out. I think you'd probably enjoy it. Um, I mean, I assume that you're somewhere near <laughs> Vienna, <laughs> Austria, but if you are, you should, you should uh, take a look. I think that's all I got for notes for you, so we will go on to episode 81 of the Cognicast. Okay, so then we can go ahead and kick off. Uh, all right then. Welcome everybody. Today is Wednesday, May 20th in the year 2015, and this is the Cognicast. I'm very pleased to welcome our guest today. He is a, a good guy, a fellow Cognitect, my boss, and perhaps most importantly, at least to our listeners, the audio producer of this here show. I'm talking, of course, about Russ Olson. Welcome to the show, Russ. Thanks, Craig. So I thought it would be really fun to have you on um, for a variety of reasons. We can talk about the work that you do for the show, and I think there's a number of other things that uh, we could and will talk to you about as well. But of course, we start off, as you well know, by asking our guests to relate some experience, um, some artistic experience they've had that they would like to share with our audience. So what have you selected for us today? Okay, well, today I thought I would go with a sh doing a shout-out to my favorite art form, which is... One of the most primal, fundamental art forms, I think, that we have available to us as people. It's, it also turns out to be one of the most useful in practical terms, if you know something about this art form. And it's oddly almost invisible in our culture. And what I'm talking about is actually storytelling and the kind of storytelling that you do stand up in front of one person or 100 people or 1,000 people and tell a story out loud without a lot of special effects and not written down and, and that kind of thing. And storytelling is almost what makes us people. If you think of what makes us different from everything else alive in the world, it is the fact that we can tell each other stories, that we can remember what happened. 
But if you tell, and as I do occasionally, tell people you're interested in storytelling, their first question will be something like, oh, do you write short stories? Or, oh, are you working on a screenplay? And, and that's what I mean by it's sort of invisible. People almost don't have this idea that it's an art form. And of course, it is one of the most fundamental. And it's also, if you think back, say, to your college days of a really good professor and one that was not so great, I am willing to wager that in most of those cases, one of the differences between a good teacher and a not so great one is the quality of the storytelling that goes on. Um, certainly, that's true with technical books, nonfiction books, that if there's good stories in a book, it will hold you well beyond anything else. So storytelling. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, um, I, I, my, my group of close friends from when I was uh, growing up, the ones I hung out with, you know, in my younger days, we kind of have a strong tradition of storytelling, not quite as formal. I don't know, formal is the wrong word. I mean, we, we sit around and tell stories. Lots of people yeah, do. No, that, I mean, that's the fundamental thing about it, right? That's, that's where it all starts, I right. think. Yeah, and, and of course, you are well-known as a storyteller, I think, easily, easily one of the best conference presentations I've ever seen, oh, um, even though I had seen it before, because <laughs> you gave this talk internally at, at Cognitect, um, was the To the Moon talk from the Conj. In fact, I think it would have been hands down the best talk at the Conj, and that is not light praise. There were lots of good talks. If it hadn't been for the fact that Tim gave his talk at the right, same conference, yes, yes. <laughs> so I think that yes. those were both quite I, amazing. I, I, um, but but Tim's talk, so so you know, going back to the storytelling thing, I think if you watch Tim's talk, it's less obvious. You know, Tim doesn't stand up there and say, "I'm going to tell you a story," but his talk is peppered with all of these interesting little tales of his adventures through woodworking and software development. And it's one of the things that makes that talk really, really compelling. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has the structure of a story, you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of mystery to it. But anyway, your talk was great, and I think I can well see that you are interested in storytelling and that it's, a, it's an important thing to you. So, which I think kind of leads us to podcasting, because I think podcasting is... For, for me, at least, podcasting is about having a conversation, and it's hard to separate those two things, I think. I mean, there is an aspect in which storytelling can be unidirectional, but I think I like, when I'm doing the show, I like to try to do a lot more listening than talking. Right. And so we really are, I think, getting people's stories. So maybe we'll start there, actually, then, out of okay. the list of things that I want to talk about, which is not, not so much on the story side, although I'd love to hear any anything that touches on that, because I'm interested in the topic as well. But the podcasting stuff, I mean, we've said you're the audio producer. What does that mean? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you do for the show, Russ? What exactly is that? I guess the, the way this podcast gets made is that Kim spends an awful lot of time lining up people for you to talk to and, and just kind of arranging everything so that this conversation can happen. And she does a lot of that up front. She does a lot of a lot of the post stuff too, but what comes out of a session like what we're doing right now is kind of a raw recording of our conversation, and I and so my job is to get that into a form, get that into the final MP3, and um, so I'm starting with the raw material of sort of this raw conversation and the artwork that Michael Parento puts together. And I make the, the final MP3. And I see my job as 
uh, trying to make the people on the podcast, you and whoever you're talking to, sound as good as I possibly can. And I mean that in the you know classic sort of sound engineering sense to the limit of my poor abilities, but also in the sense of, you know, anyone who's ever sort of done conference talks and and that sort of thing knows that when you say things and you're sort of reacting in the moment, they don't always come out well. The there, you know, there's ums and pauses and things like that. And I say my job is trying to make this conversation sound as good as it possibly can sound while remaining invisible and while not changing anything fundamental. So in a sense, my job on the podcast is kind of the same as my job at Cognitech because I'm trying to be the person behind the scenes that makes everything just work a little bit better. Yeah, and I definitely want to come back and talk about your um, other job at Cognitech, maybe we should say, or one of your other jobs. But, um, <laughs> but So you and I actually have both spent a lot of time, <laughs> maybe, maybe some would say too much time, working on software oh, in, yeah. in support of the podcast production. Uh, I wrote a closure sound library called DIN, which is sort of about low-level manipulation of waveforms. And then I built on top of it a, a piece of software that I called Podcastifier, which was really purpose-built for producing this show, where it uses DIN to you know, essentially do the mixing and assembling of the various audio assets, the theme music, the promotional material at the, at the beginning, the credits at the end, and puts it all together into a single uh, WAV file. And right. then you, when I handed off audio production to you, you took that and you kind of <laughs> went even farther with that. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about the work you did there. Sure. I think uh, Podcastifier is kind of interesting in a few dimensions. It's just interesting in the sense of how does a podcast get assembled, but it's also interesting in the psychology of computer programming where I think we both would admit that we went a little over the top with this project, mm, yeah. built something for the pure joy of building it well beyond what it really needed to be. But but you started, so you wrote this beautiful sound library that does all of the hard work. And so let me say up front that I'm I, you know, anything I did was sort of changing the, the layout of the icing on the cake where the actual cake is the sound library you, eh. you built. Well, I could, but I could reflect that back and say the hard parts are really handled by the, you know, the Java libraries that I used to manipulate the sound underneath. So, I mean, you know, we all stand on the shoulders right. of, of giants in our own way. Uh, you know, there's a funny story behind that, that, that quote. A story, uh, you say? Yes. Do tell. Yes. That that line comes from Newton and the story, which, you know, I don't really care if it's true or not. It's a good story. The story is that it might have been Halley or something. It was someone that, that Newton was not really crazy about who had clearly done some of the the work that led to Newton's work. And when Newton said, the, so the story goes, when Newton said that, you know, we, we all stand on the shoulders of, of giants, he was kind of taking a shot at this other guy who was not the tallest person in the room. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, well, as neither I said, am I, so there we go. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so I think... I think Podcastifier right, relied on the sound processing library, but Podcastifier was kind of the thing that scripted it all together and assembled the, 
the the podcast. So I have the intro music and the intro, you know, your little little stuff that we put in the beginning that says welcome and and that kind of stuff. Does some plugs for uh, user groups and that kind of thing, and assembles it all into the final MP3 or final wave file. And you, when it started, when I got it, you had done the completely obvious thing where you had written a completely straightforward program that did step A and step B and step C, C and resulted in the final sound file. And then you had looked at it, I think, and decided, hey, here's a piece that needs to vary. Like maybe this, the name of this file needs to vary. Certainly there's time parameters, right? This In this episode, the intro thing is a little bit longer than in some other episode. So you had extracted all of that out and put it in a configuration file, which is a completely sensible thing to do. And that, that was fine, and that worked when I took over editing the podcast for a while. But we got to a point where we decided this to change the format of the show just a little bit. And then I was sort of faced with the, with the problem that, well, now some of the assumptions built in the podcastifier were, were, were no longer true. And what do you do about that? And I started out with the idea that I just go in and kind of rejigger the, the program and leave it pretty much the same. And, and so I could have certainly done that, and it certainly could have worked, and, and podcasting life would have gone on. But at a certain point, I, it, it hit me, A, that I really wanted to do a little after-hours programming because I don't get to do that all that much. And I, I slowly came to a different idea, which was to look at the configuration file as kind of a program and a program where each expression in the program didn't result in a number or a string or something, but resulted in a sound sample. And once I, once I did that, I sort of, I did the classic sort of second year computer science student thing where I wrote an eval function the way you do when you're implementing your own Lisp, except that my eval function was very specialized. It took this configuration file and evaluated it and what it evaluated it to was uh, the sound sample the the final sound uh, sample that we would then turn into the final podcast and it was probably a really really over engineered for what we're doing b really interesting for me in terms of just figuring out how the sound library you had written worked and remembering some things that I probably know at some point about sound processing and just see just a hoot to to write and play with. Yeah, so I, I actually haven't used it ever because, you know, you wrote this version of it. I looked at it. I merged it, but I never, I've never. You're retired. I did, right? So I have got, I've got people for this, these things now, which, and by the way, in case I haven't, I know I've said it on the show, but never while you're on the show. Thanks a ton. It really does make a huge difference to me that you're taking care of that aspect of the production. It, it, it makes an enormous difference. Um, well, and I'm glad you got to have welcome. fun along the way producing this tool. So the, the thing that strikes me is, even though I've never used it, I've looked at what you've done, and, and you wind up with, you could arguably call it a configuration file, but I think you could also arguably call it a script. Yes. Right? And, and it really uh, speaks, I think, directly to the whole data is code code is data thing yeah that that, that that's almost that's the most fun thing or the most interesting thing about podcastifier for me is i sort of feel like the configuration file that that essentially says i mean it's not rocket science it essentially says oh you will find a sound sample in this file over here and 
you should, you know, turn it into a stereo and mute it a little bit or whatever, you know, all the kinds of things that you do. But it, but the, the way it's done is if you're, you're looking in the, in the file and you find something that is obviously supposed to be a sample and then you look at it and you do that sort of lisp eval thing of saying, oh, is this a string? Well, if it's a string, then that must be the name of a file that I should read in, a sound sample file. Oh, is it a hash? That must be uh, some processing instructions, maybe turn it into stereo or whatever, and I'll, I'll do that. And oh, is it a vector? Then it must be a series of these operations. And it's the kind of thing that any closure really list programmer does in their sleep. But just finding kind of a, a really pure practical application of that where it's data, it's sort of a program, it's sort of hovering right there on that line. It's sort of code, it's sort of data. That, that was the cool part of it for me. Well, do you think that, I mean, I'm always interested in this, right? Because essentially then what you're doing is inventing a language and writing a, a compiler or an interpreter for it, depending on exactly how you do it. Yes. And the question, do you, did you in the process of doing this discover any heuristics that help you decide when to do that because you could have just put closure in a file in fact that's as you said that's what i started out doing was simply wrote you know there was some configuration some data right, but right. but there was really like call this function take the result and pass it to this function like explicit like a normal closure program and you kind of took a step back from that and said well i'm going to have a different format it's not closure code per se but it is like it's eden it, right, but it's isomorphic with a closure program, right? You could yes. also write the same program using closure code. And did you did you realize some benefit, or did you? I started, you know, since I have a Ruby background, the way a Ruby programmer would likely uh, attack this problem. So, so what you would do is you would write the configuration file in Ruby. This is indeed Ruby code, but Ruby code that is as stripped down and as convenient for what you're trying to say as possible. And then you write the infrastructure around that to make that Ruby code work. And then the infrastructure kind of becomes the implementation of the DSL and the actual description of the podcast, which is actual executable Ruby code becomes more or less the configuration file. So it's code is data, data as code, but leaned more towards the code end of it. it. Sorry, is it data at that point? I mean, do you have a, a can you process it into some other form the way that you can with like a, a, a vector or a, or a well, well, it's more like code is data in the sense that it's generic enough and expressive enough that if you wrote a different set of supporting libraries, you could do something else with the data. Right, but it's definitely code, so it's on the code side of that code is data, data is code thing. Gotcha. Right, is the typical, you know, you know the technical term I think is internal DSL, right? Mm -hmm. I'm writing a DSL, but it's really code in the language that I'm writing in. And that, you know, when I started looking at Podcastifier and thinking that I wanted to do something different with it, I started with the idea that I would do the Ruby thing, that I would just write some infrastructure so that when I went to write the little program that would assemble the podcast, it would be really easy and convenient. And the thing that made me not do that, one, A, it didn't feel very closure-like. And I'm kind of a fan of, of not speaking French with an Italian accent, right? <laughs> writing, writing the code in the, in the, the idiom of the language. Well, and, and so that, that was one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is that... 
I'm not really a very detail-oriented person, and I realized that if I tried to make this thing full-blown closure code, at some point, at some podcast somewhere, I was going to make a terrible mistake, and, you know, we were going to get... Craig talking for half an hour and then 10 minutes of feedback and then the guests talking for half an hour or something, you know, some horrible, horrible thing. That right? would be pretty horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the kind of mistake that you can make in a, in a fully general purpose kind of programming mm-hmm. language, right? Mm-hmm. Not, no, one, no human being can be as stupid as a computer. And so what I came to was I wanted something that had like guides, like swim lanes to keep me from doing that. And that's when I came up with, hey, let's make this sort of closure and have an eval function. But the eval function is very, very specialized. And the the kind of the configuration or the code is data, data is code thing is very constrained so that you can tell So it will do a lot of things, but it won't do everything. So what I ended up with is more or less an external DSL. And I think that's the the dividing line is, do I really need the full power of a programming language? If the answer is yes, maybe you go for an internal DSL, something that's really code. And if the answer is no, I think you go for an external DSL. In other words, data as, you know, more on the data side as opposed to the code side. Hmm. That that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. It's it's interesting stuff. And I think the the thing is, you know, we're once again back to the place we always come to, which is that most of the hard problems in computer science are about psychology. Because really, it seems to me like the question that you're trying to answer there is, how am I going to use this? How do I need to be able to think about this? Not what can it do? Because they're equivalent, right? Yeah, we, we can do this a million different ways, right? Yeah, <laughs> it, and the full. Yeah. The full Turing complete DSL, the thing that does everything. Yeah. You, you quoted the, re, the reason you cited for not doing it that way was you were afraid that you would screw up. Yeah. And, and believe me, I, can, uh, I, I have a fantastic talent for screwing up. So. Well, uh, we'll, we'll, compare, we'll compare powers <laughs> on that one someday. Uh, I, might, I might win. I think I did an RMRF on a on a production system one time. That was pretty good. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it was just faxing though. So even in, yeah. of course, it was 1996 or something. So faxing was still semi important. Anyway. So I, I I was we had an intern at one of my companies, and I had this was back in the days when Sun uh, workstations were a thing, and I had taken him through the two or three hours it took to install an operating system, get all the software that we needed installed on this thing. And I was going on and on about the the advantages of Unix because he had mostly used Windows. And at some point, I, I took him into the dev directory and was showing him all the devices. And I said, oh, and this device here is just the raw disk. And let me show you the first few bytes of the raw disk. And I ran like cat or something or more. Only I got the uh, less than greater than sign in the wrong direction. <laughs> it's right over the disk <laughs> and uh, destroyed the system that we had just taken hours to build. So it wasn't in production, but but the up close and personal level of embarrassment, I think, might have been greater. Cool. So. Yeah, it's a Spider-Man moment, right? With great power comes great <laughs> <Yes>. responsibility <laughs> to not do that. <laughs> yes. And of course, we all ran as root in those days. It was yeah. it was the Wild West. There, there is another user. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Well, so that's really interesting work that you've done. There's a couple of the things I want to make sure we take time to get to today. 
One of which is, uh, as I said before, your other job, you know, your, your primary responsibility at Cognitech. What, what, do you, what is your primary responsibility at Cognitech? So, so I'm the vice president of consulting services at Cognitech. So I essentially am the constitutional monarch of the consulting business at, uh, at Cognitech because people, people always think that, that if you're in this position of kind of, you know, you have vice president in your title or something, you make all the decisions and everybody scurries around and, and that's just not the way it is, at least not in a well-run company, in, in my opinion. It's more like I, I fill a certain role. And the role I fill, I guess, is is trying – I spend a lot of my time trying to line up the people who want us to do things with the consultants that we have to do stuff. And it turns out that that is – uh, maybe not a full-time job, but but uh, a big chunk of of the week is simply trying to connect the dots, and it and it's gotten more interesting as our business has changed. I think uh, four years ago or so, when I when I came to work with for what was then Relevance, our business was very much a question of. You know, you come to us as a customer with some problem or some system that you're visualizing, and we will build it for you. We will work with you to make sure you understand it. We'll educate you on the technologies behind it. But fundamentally, we were building a system for you. That was most of the business, I think, that we were doing uh, a few years ago. And that's changed. We still we still do a fair bit of that. But we also do a lot of shorter architectural reviews where you're building a system. Maybe you're using Clojure or Datomic. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're just building a you know a, a system, and you're not 100% sure that you're doing it right, or you want someone to to sort of look through what you're doing and make suggestions. And we and so we've we tend to do a lot of these engagements where we'll have one of our more experienced people come in and look over what you're doing and just see if there's things where it can be better, if there's maybe places where you're going off into the weeds a little bit, that kind of thing. There's a continuum now, right? There's the, the we'll, we'll build the system for you. We'll do it all. There's, we'll build the system in conjunction with maybe some of your developers to, we'll help you build the system to help you build the system that you are otherwise building yourself to we will help you understand some particular aspect of a technology that we know a lot about, particular closure and datomic as you're building the system. So and, and that's been great. I, I, I think sort of the expansion of how we look at how we're helping people has really been good for us and it's been good for our customers. It does make my job kind of complicated because you know, in, in days, we, we joke that figuring out who's working on what is kind of a game of Tetris. And uh, now all the blocks and whatnot are radically different shapes, you know, than they used to be. They used to be squares and rectangles all kind of coming down. And now there's triangles and circles and things with points on them, that kind of thing. So, sorry, just I was I, that is funny. I mean, and, and I, the, but you just reminded me of a comment. I forget who said this. Was it you? My problem with Tetris is always trying to figure out how many times I should rotate the square before I drop it. So I think that was Tim Ewald. Okay, that was him. <laughs> of course. I should have known. Yeah, so staffing Tetris, right? We've talked about this internally a lot, is that it is staffing, as you say, allocating people to the work that needs to be done. 
seems to be one of the hardest things that we do. I mean, it's some place where we spend a lot of effort as a company. And uh, I wonder if you could maybe explain a little bit why you think that is, because I could imagine someone out there saying, what's the big deal? You've got a bunch of consultants. This one's on the bench. You put them on the project. Yeah, no. So it turns out that people in our business, we, we, we have this kind of dichotomy on how we think about people, which is that uh, someone goes home to their family and maybe there's children and, and a spouse, and they know that their spouse likes this and doesn't like that and is wonderful at doing that and their kids you know little jimmy is great at art and little sally is great at math and you know we're all you know in our personal lives we are absolutely convinced that people are all different and then we go to work and we talk about resources right? <laughs> let me tell you people are not all the same and, and i'm aware of that every minute of every day there are there are personalities, and yeah, I, I feel like our consultants are some of the most professional people ever, but they're people, and they have talents and experience and personalities. And then there is sort of kind of in the background, there's sort of the goal that, that we're trying to, to get to, the, the, the reason we're doing this. Yes, we're trying to, to – I'm trying to run a profitable consultancy here and I'm trying to do employee retention and make sure we have good benefits and, and all of that kind of, kind of uh, stuff that's really important. But the other thing we're trying to do is uh, we're trying to make the world safer for programmers is the way I think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm – you know, that's, that's the, the weak version of it. The, the strong version of it is we're trying to make the world a better place, quite honestly. I mean, I, that sounds like I'm suffering from megalomania, but – uh, we've all come to Cognitech because in some way or other we've discovered closure and the ideas behind closure and this these ideas for how to build large-scale systems with functional programming languages, making it practical, using immutable data, you know, all the, all the rest of it. And I don't think there is a person at Cognitech who doesn't sort of feel like if there was more, more people using those technologies out in the world – that the world wouldn't be a better place. And I think most of us are here at Cognitech because we want to see that happen. Like maybe we don't have the answer, but we have a really good answer. And so in the back of my mind always is, you know, yes, I need to run a profitable business and I need to keep people happy and everything. But in the back of my mind, it is those you know, this engagement or helping this customer in one way versus another, does it, am I helping them get to a better world, I guess is the way to put it. Hmm. Um, and that's, you know, you know, I think we all need to have sort of hopes and dreams. And that's the thing that gets me out of bed every morning. What, what does it look like when you find a client where you're, where you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is how we're going to make the world a better place is by helping this particular group of people. So I think I, I think the most obvious way we do that is every now and then we will get a client. We actually just started the project very much like this this week. We will get a client who comes to us and says, hey, you know what? I've been building systems for a long time in various technologies. I've looked at this closure thing. I think it's really good. I've started down the route of building things in closure and I think it's great, but I'm kind of reaching the limits of what I can do on my own. Can you help me? 
And of course, my eyes well up with tears and I have to clear my throat. And then I say, oh, let me try. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, I think, you know, I think that's really how uh, in the in the bigger scheme of things, I think that's how things really change is, you know, I've done my share of conference talks and we talked about Tim's talk, right? Wonderfully inspiring. And we need that. We need the stories that we live by. But we also need, if you're really gonna gonna do something real, you need to do it one person, one cut, one one software development group, one company at a time. If I think I have a better way of building software, well, prove it. Um, I'll flip it around then. Um, do you ever talk to people and say, us spending time with this group of people, this potential customer, will not improve the world, and therefore we should not engage with them? Does that what does that conversation look like if you ever have it? I, well, I think I think sometimes we have, you know, this is software development, right? Sometimes people will come to us with ideas and plans that are seem dramatically out of sync with reality, right? I mean, it's really easy to look at some software problem or some system that you want to build and think that it's going to be a lot easier than, say, someone who's done that 12 times knows it's going to be. And... So we do sometimes the there's these un, slightly uncomfortable conversations, but ones that I'm happy to have, which is you know, I've talked to Craig to put you on the spot, right? I've talked to Craig, and he doesn't think any group of three people can build that in six weeks. Full stop. Occasionally, people will come to us and want us to build I don't know a system in small talk or something like that, and we'll just kind of say you know. It looks like a great system. We're probably not the people to help you with that. And it's not that, you know, small talked or whatever. It's not that I, th I think the way to go about changing the world in a positive way is to never say, well, unless you're joking, you know, this technology sucks. The way to go about sort of making the world better in a positive kind of way is to say, hey, I think I've got a good way of doing this. Let me try and make the case that that. The, the ideas that I have will work really well for you. And then go off and try some other ideas because I'm trying to, you know, uh, if I'm wrong, I want to know about it. Yeah, right. I mean, I, the way I like to think about it, and I think this is what you're saying, is um, it's not wise to talk in terms of absolutes. This thing is good. This thing is bad. Without saying a context, it's good for this. It's bad yeah. at this. Or it has, these are the trade-offs that you're going to take on as a consequence of this decision. Yeah, I think I, I think that if you were starting out in software development or really any other engineering type endeavor and you wanted a gift from me, it would be a box of trade-offs, right? <laughs> there, there, is, there is nothing in sort of building stuff that doesn't involve some trade-offs. Very few things are absolutely better than other things. Yeah, that's I actually think that's what engineering is. It's about navigating trade-offs and there, yeah. there's a lot of them and a lot of them have to do with people as we mentioned which are some of the hardest ones yeah you know. i think you know you just reminded me i think i think it was douglas adams who said that technology is what we call the stuff that doesn't actually work <laughs> <laughs> right like a landline telephone right is no longer technology but you pick it up and man there's the dial tone every time that's right well, speaking of things that don't work, you are a bit of a tinkerer, uh, just like me, right? You like to make things, and uh, that, of course, involves lots of um, half-failed attempts. I have a, uh, 
<laughs> a foot-powered lathe in my shop in the next room that I actually been tinkering with. But you've been that we could talk about failures there all day long. That's actually version two, and it still wow. has issues. But um, but I'm actually more interested to talk to you about. First of all, I don't want to leave this topic behind. We can we can come back to it, or you can tell me that you had more to say. But uh, but if that's a good place to pause for a moment, I'd love to hear about your latest project because uh, you, you posted a couple pictures of this thing. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a one-string. So, so I think technically it's a well, it's somewhere between. So it's a musical instrument. Let's let's kind of bound it off that way, or at least in theory, it's a musical <laughs> instrument. Uh, so I think the the people who know about these things would look at it and say it's a diddly bow. And a diddly bow uh, originally was a very simple instrument um, that I think came out of sort of the African-American culture of, say, maybe in the 1920s or the 1930s, you know, originally was maybe a board or a plank with two nails in it, a nail at either end, and a piece of bailing wire or something stretched between it. And you played it with a slide. So think about cutting the, the neck off of a bottle and using it as a glass slide and kind of play it with this sort of twangy, you know, uh, droning beat and you're sliding along. And the interesting part about it was it was one of the instruments that, that the blues was invented on. Um, so flash forward 90 years or so, and people, are build, people, including me, are building kind of hybrids of diddly bows and cigar box guitars. You know, a cigar box guitar is kind of a homemade thing where the guitar sound body, the body of the guitar is a cigar box. And then putting pickups in them, so electric guitar pickups. And what happened was a bunch of us, a bunch of Cognitechers went off to a music store and they were selling uh, a, a really nice electric diddly bow, something along with a cigar box body. And, and one of us fell in love with the thing and bought it. And, of course, the rest of us were looking at it, and, you know, it's a bunch of technical people, so we're looking at this thing, and we're thinking not, oh, I can buy one of those. We're thinking, I'm going to build me one of those, <laughs> right? Isn't that, right? Yep. Isn't that how you feel whenever you go to the airport, right? You look around at the airport, air, you know, you look at a 747, and little voice in your head is saying, I can build one of those. Yeah. Well, I mean, the lathe <laughs> in the next room, um, yeah. the, the things I've considered adding to it are the following. At the moment, it's just a couple pieces of wood that hold another piece of the wood and let it rotate. And it's powered a rope that's attached to a bungee cord, and you push it up and down, and it goes yep. back and forth. The, here are the things I've considered adding to it. Something called a live center, <laughs> which is a you know sort of fancy mechanical bearing, and a motor. <laughs> and so if you think about those things, that's a lathe. That's like a real lathe that you would go to a, a woodcraft or wherever tool store and, and buy one. And, and right, right. the fact that I'm in my mind, building up to doing that is exactly what you're talking about with, uh, oh yeah, I, I could easily make one of those for the mere investment of several dozen hours of my time. Yes. What I think of as the quintessential moment like that in my life was I'm married and I have four brothers-in-law. My wife, Karen, has four brothers and they're all engineers, technically inclined kind of people, go figure, as was my wife. And one of her brothers, had, many years ago, had bought his first house. So what do you do? You go and, and you know visit the house and look it over and say nice things about the house. 
And so we're kind of taking the tour of the house, and I noticed he had a detached garage as part of this house. And I said, oh, you've got a garage over there. I bet that would make a great workshop. And he said, yes, come and see the hovercraft. <laughs> yes. And so in my mind, right, that's the phrase, right? Like I'm going to, you know, whenever I have one of these crazy projects, come and see the hovercraft, right? Oh, awesome. Um, He's but a anyway, I did get the diddly bow is mostly working. It still has a, a few modifications I want to make, which is probably the state it'll stay in forever now. But uh, it and it makes some interesting music. Cool. Well, maybe we can uh, convince you, nudge nudge, to um, attach some of some of it to this episode in an appropriate place when you're editing. I, I know a guy. You know a guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talk to that guy. Yeah. Cool. What in, so what in, you just this was just you saw this instrument and it just caught, it just took your fancy that you should build one. Yeah, well, well, part of it was that, and part of it was that uh, Marshall, another person who works at Cognitech, he had a kind of a broken sort of knockoff Stratocaster guitar. So he had all of the critical parts that I might not, you know, I I really don't have guitar pickups laying around in my house. I. I want to fix that i think but uh at the moment i didn't have a, you know or a guitar tuner but he had all of that stuff and it was like well okay now i have a tuner and a pickup and marshall gave it to me i have to build something now you know it's <laughs> it's the it's the male imperative not to look stupid in front of your friends right maybe that's a human imperative <laughs> and yet <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so what's interesting is, I mean, obviously you, you are a musician and we've talked about this a bunch. There's a couple things about you as a musician that I find interesting. Um, one is that you were, I think this is true, primarily on acoustic instruments for a long time. Right. Another is that you have played a fairly large number of instruments. And the third is that you had until recently never really played with anyone else. Right. Right. Are those all correct? Yeah, they are. So, so my particular story is that I've always been interested in music, but I have really very minimal natural talent. I've never actually, you know, I was not the kid who could pick up a musical instrument and start playing it and it sounded good and, you know, or reasonably well. It's, it's always been a, uh, I wouldn't say it's a struggle. It's, it's always been work for me, but kind of work in a good sense of, okay, if I spend a long time on this, I get incrementally better at it, and I find that really, really satisfying. And I'm also sort of in love with the the idea of picking up a new instrument and that anybody who's ever sort of learned a musical instrument, right, you get through the first awkward part of it, and then you start making progress really, really rapidly for a while. And then maybe you hit that kind of advanced beginner's plateau. And I think that really explains the the why uh, I, I've tried so many different musical instruments is that I just love that, that going from terrible to almost listenable experience is just really fun for me. And so I, I do that a lot. I, I, I think very early on, because I was really interested in, in that and just sort of interested in exploring music and how, how it changed what was going on in my mind, at some point early on, maybe in my 20s or early 30s, I just kind of decided I wasn't playing with people anymore because the people who were interested in music around me, A, were all much better musicians than I was, but they were very much interested in getting to the point where their music sounded really good. And at least back then, 
I wasn't really that interested. So it was almost like we were doing two different things. I was doing this exploration kind of thing, and they were, I don't know, racing cars or something like that. You know, maybe uh, both, you know, exploring new worlds involves travel and racing cars, in a sense, involves travel. And superficially, they seem the same. But we were really doing two very different things. And so at some point, I just decided, you know, this is kind of not worth it. And maybe that was a mistake or, you know, I, I don't know. And anyway, in the last few years, I've kind of come around to the joys of playing with other people. Last couple of years, really. Uh, and it really has been a lot of fun. Um, you, you and I have, have played mm -hmm. uh, at times. And it, it's a different dimension of it that I, I think I was just sort of ignoring for a while. One, one thing, since I have tried a bunch of different instruments, I will say this, if there's anybody who's listening who has maybe tried to play music and it hasn't really worked out well for them, and that is that I really struggled with the guitar for years and put a lot of time into it and didn't really get a lot out of it and finally put it aside for maybe five or six years. And then one day I picked up a ukulele and almost the, based on sort of the skills that I had developed for the guitar, I could play the ukulele maybe at the end of the first week better than I could play the guitar at the end of the 15th year. Hmm. So what I learned from that is that if you're sort of musically inclined and a little frustrated because it hasn't worked out for you there's probably an instrument out there for you and you just need to try them i think i remember you mentioning that one of the things about it was simply the size and it, when you when you went back to the guitar did, didn't you pick up like a smaller instrument with a shorter scale yeah so so what i what i discovered with the ukulele is is that i have no coordination there's things that are really hard for me to learn if I, if my hands, you know, physical kinds of things, if my hands are really far away from my body, right? I sort of knew that in life, but, you know, you don't necessarily relate it to, to music and stuff like that. And, I, and by playing the ukulele, well, everything's like really close to your body and I didn't have to reach out. And, I, and there were all the, it was clear there were all these things I had learned trying to play the guitar that just finally found expression in the ukulele. And then, sort of having figured that all out, I went and got me a short scale guitar and a Gresh instrument called the Jim Dandy, which is really very inexpensive. And I could play that so much easier than I could play the more full size guitar that I had been struggling with for years. For, for me, that's one of those very simple truths that it took me so freaking long to, to figure out. Right? So, so now when you and I played at, um, when we were most recently together down in Durham, one of the instruments you played was my primary instrument, the bass. Yes. Which of course is at the other end of the spectrum. I mean, whenever I pick up a regular guitar, let alone a short scale one, I'm like, gosh, this thing it's is tiny. Toy. So how did you find that? I mean, we had fun. I, you know, we yeah. played learned a couple songs together. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's the kind of thing that when I was struggling with the guitar, it was there were things that I could not learn just because there was this sort of physical, my hands were really far away from my body kind of thing. There were things that I, I, I would just hit a roadblock and couldn't learn. I picked up the ukulele and not only could I play it better, but I could learn those things, which then allowed me to go to slightly bigger instruments. And I, but I got to tell you, I think you're exaggerating how my competence on the bass was pretty minimal. So. <laughs> it was fun. I mean, it was it was a blast. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. I I, I also think uh, again, I sort of I occasionally run into people who are musically frustrated. I think 
my conclusion about not playing with other people all those years ago was probably the wrong one. Probably I needed to keep looking for people who were more compatible with what I wanted to do. And certainly playing with the people at Cognitech that we do, nobody really cares how good you are. Nobody really cares. Uh, It's kind of just being in the moment. And I think that that would have resonated with me 20 years ago as well as it does did three weeks ago. Well, I got to say, it's funny to me how often as we reach sort of the later parts of the show, people naturally start giving really good advice, (laughs) (laughs) especially given that we usually use it as our closer. Now, I'm not quite ready to close out yet because I certainly want to make sure that, that we covered everything that makes sense to you to talk about today. So before we wind down, is there anything else that we haven't gotten to today that you want to make sure you share with people? So I've, I've said this sort of in, in you know quiet groups and at conferences and stuff like that. So I have spent a lot of time in the Ruby world, and now I spend a lot of my time doing closure-related things. And one of the things that I really want to say to to maybe people who are listening to this because they know me from the Ruby world is that you really should give Clojure a try. All of the reasons that made me look at Ruby in the year, I don't know, 1999 or 2000 are exactly the reasons that made me turn the Clojure at some point. It it It's a different way of looking at building systems and I know that sort of the values of, you know, I, Ruby people will look at closure code and say it doesn't look like code or that it's ugly and things like that. And I felt all of those things. But I also felt those things as a Java person coming to Ruby. And so the one, th- one, of the, the one thing that I wanted to say here, since I have sort of the platform, is if you're a Rubyist, then you're, you're sort of thinking, you know, are there other things I could do? Have a good hard look at closure. So... That also sounded like advice, I guess. I oh, yeah. Is that – so uh, that's cool. So that's that's excellent. Obviously, I agree with you, right? And I did not actually um, come to closure through Ruby as so many people did, although I guess tangentially I did in the sense that I joined Relevance back in the day because it was, you know, sort of a center of closure, especially back in 2010. But I never really spent a lot of time in Ruby. I kind of went – Went, yeah. went straight to closure, so that's 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 very cool. I think we do get a lot of our um, a lot of our community members have come in through that route, and so I think uh, you know, as you say, a lot of the things that are exciting about Ruby, how it's different from what's available in more mainstream languages, are definitely um, things that people find exciting about closure. So that's that's cool. But I guess what I'm really trying to ask is, we appear to be here at the end of our conversation. We will certainly have you back to have another conversation. I always look forward to my conversations with you, recorded or not. It, it, was that the advice for people, or do you have another thing in your pocket I, to share I, I with actually, us? you know me better than that. Um, <laughs> I actually do have some. So, so I think, you know, I've edited, I don't know how many of these podcasts, and, and uh, your whole, uh, the, the whole thing of ending with some advice, and I searched around for, something to talk about. And of course, it hit me, again, this is another example of something being so obvious you can't see it, is probably the most popular thing I ever wrote, certainly the most popular article that kind of appeared on websites was called The Best Programming Advice I Ever Got. And I thought maybe I could kind of rehash that because it still is the best programming advice I've ever gotten. And to no one's particular surprise, it's kind of built around a story. 
Um, and, the, and the story is that when I was very new uh, programmer, in fact, it was my first, I, I had started out as a mechanical engineer, and this was my first job where my title was programmer and not engineer or software or something or other. And it was this large CAD system we were working on. So we're working on this product, which was CAD system, which in the early, mid-1980s was the highest of high tech. I mean, it was a plum job. And there were probably 30 or 40 software developers working on this thing. And it was great. I mean, it was 3D graphics and, and you know, all this really expensive hardware we were working on. From my mind, there was only one problem with that system, which was even by the standards of 1983, it was slow. Mm -hmm. And in particular, the graphics were painfully, horribly slow. You would have some simple picture up on the screen and it would take a minute and a half to draw. And it was just unusably slow. So I'm a new engineer and I just got to this project and I'm a little brash and I was supposed to be doing something else, but I spent a weekend trying to figure out why the graphics just seemed so slow. And what I discovered was the system was built kind of as, as a client-server thing along the lines of X-Windows. And it, and it turned out that the original designer of the graphics subsystem really thought X-Windows was kind of a new thing or maybe the ideas were floating around at the time. And he thought it was a really cool idea and he built the system that way, except this was like a 1983 system and running all the graphics commands through a socket was horribly, you know, it was an incredible amount of overhead. And so I kind of, you know, I spent a weekend and I kind of tore out the client server part of this and made it all sort of one program. And we got like an order of magnitude, better performance. I, it, looking back, it was a completely obvious thing to do. And as we'll see, I think lots of other people you know, on that project could have done that. It wasn't, I thought it was brilliant at the time. I'm, I think less so now. Um, <laughs> But so I was all proud of what I had done and I showed it to my boss and then he showed it to his boss and then, you know, and I'm going up the chain of command, like, like suddenly I'm dealing with people I had never met before because they were so high in this organization and it seemed like everybody was impressed. And then, you know, the next day I came in the work and it was like I had plague. It was, you know, there were people who were obviously avoiding me and there was this just feeling that something bad had happened. And what had happened was that that organization was kind of organized in two major groups. And those, and of course, I was completely clueless about this. I figured this out later. And those two major groups were at war with each other, organizationally just fighting to this bitter, horrible, you know, political battle. And I had just handed one side in that battle the war-winning weapon. Oh, you people are completely incompetent. Look at, you know, what this uh, 20-something engineer did. Of course, there was probably everyone who worked on that project knew that that was the problem and knew how to fix it. Nobody was stupid enough, except me, to actually, like, you know, raise my hand and say, hey, we could fix this. So there was this just really, really intensely unpleasant month or so where people were fighting and everything. And eventually they decided 
to that they were going to re-architect the thing along the lines that I had kind of stumbled into. And it was right around there that the big boss, this guy who, you know, was sort of like I saw from a distance, like the president of the United States, he called me into his office. And I thought he was going to say, oh, well, you know, it all worked out. Thanks for the effort or something. And instead, what he said to me was he looked me right in the eye and he wasn't wasn't like hostile or anything. He looked me right in the eye and he said, in the future, stay the hell out of other people's code. (laughs) And that turned out to be some of the most valuable advice I've ever gotten in my life. I never want to be that guy. I never, ever want to be in a situation where that's the rule. So it's kind of anti-advice, right? I'm being a little facetious here. I think that that sort of set me on the way of people, no matter who they are and what they're doing, they have something to say. And if you set up a system where the rule is in the future, stay the hell out of other people's code, you're doomed. Mm. And uh, that so, you know, if, if good advice is the advice you go back to time after time after time, that's the best advice I've ever gotten, even though I sort of do the other thing. I like it. I, it's good. I'm glad to have that ending because for a minute there, I was like trying to figure out in my head, <laughs> okay, so how do I map this to my life? Stay out of other people's code. That doesn't, I'm not sure. That challenges everything I think. So I'm glad that it was the other way. Well, cool, Russ. That was really great advice. I, um, as always, I always get good advice from you. And I think uh, our listeners are now benefiting from the same thing. But uh, that does draw our conversation to a close for this time at least. Um, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me, Craig. It was great. Absolutely. It was our pleasure, and now you get to edit it. (laughs) Yeah, that just doesn't seem fair. Uh, You know, I should have made you say super a few times. Russ is always on me for saying super too much, so uh, (laughs) uh, that's cool. But no, thanks a ton, and uh, we uh, we really enjoyed having you, and I'm looking forward to getting this episode out. We will close it down there. Uh, This has been another episode of The Cognicast. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., who you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to The Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com podcast. Our guest today was Russ Olson on Twitter at Russ Olson, R-U-S-S-O-L-S-E-N. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau. Audio production by Russ Olson. Yes, we did make him produce this episode. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.